Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Welcome, everybody. It has been a long time since we recorded an episode. Not as long as you may think, because we had an episode that we can't, because it didn't turn out very well. We have not been delivering for you. I am sorry about that. I've been delivering on my other podcast, Marvel Reread Club, but this one has not dropped an episode in several months. But we are here, and we have two guests. We've got, uh, this is two two guest episodes in a row. We have two people who have uh, delightful British accents, because we are going beyond the pond. It is an entirely different time of day over there. We are talking to Sophie Beale. She is the co-director and founder of Cadence Publishing. And we are talking to Gary Duncan, who is the senior associate editor with Cadence Publishing and a freelance editor at To The Last Word. And they recently published an article. They published a debate in what, sorry, where was this published? In Writing Magazine. In Writing Magazine in the UK. Which is the UK's best-selling magazine for writers. And they had a delightful little debate in Writing Magazine in the UK about Save the Cat. I assume most people listening to this know who Blake Snyder was, but just in case you don't, he was a screenwriter. He wrote movies like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. And then he decided to just dash off. It's a very short book. This this just quick book about the screenwriting advice he'd picked up over the years that he called Save the Cat, the last screenwriting guide you'll ever need or something like that. And then it took off like crazy and it became hugely popular and he started writing sequels to it. And then he unfortunately died. He died very young. But then other people have written follow-up guides based on it. So that is who Blake Snyder is. So let's go ahead and talk about they approached us and they said, hey, this is the sort of thing you guys do on your podcast. Why don't we all get together? And we said, that sounds great. And we've circled around Save the Cat a lot on this podcast. We have talked about it in various times. We've discussed other people's structures, but we've never really discussed Save the Cat structure or Save the Cat's titular advice. And I think we should discuss both today. So welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Why don't we go ahead and start with what you guys had to say? Why don't we go ahead and start with what with Gary's problem with Save the Cat and then Sophie's defense of Save the Cat? Okay. Well, well, what happened was a few months ago, Sophie sent me a message and she said she just had this genius idea for an article which would be putting forward the pros and cons of Save the Cat and two people arguing about it and thought that I could be one of them, didn't even suggest that she could do the other side but I said well why not you do it because you're really into save the cat and uh, I have a lot of problems with it so I pitched the article to our editor at writing magazine and he said yeah great go ahead so we did it and that's coming out in the issue that comes out at the beginning of May oh I didn't and realize it hadn't been published yet so we're no we're be, little it's the June issue preview so and uh, yeah Jonathan he liked it so much apparently he's making it the cover feature so basically what I was arguing was not that I have anything against the idea of teaching story structure or denying that there is such a thing as story structure, but just the idea of following something so prescriptive as the, the whole beat sheet with the 15 different breakdown points that it has, that if you're going to follow something that precisely, and also there is a online, you can find a Save the Cat novel generator which you type in the length of your book and it will tell you exactly where in your book each different thing should be happening and that just struck me as just it's so prescriptive that it's just going to kill anything you're doing dead if you follow that so precisely and a lot of writers I mean they just want to 
be told what to do sometimes and think that if you follow all these points, hit every beat, then you're going to have a good book. Yeah, you say and in your article, you me, say yeah. you can recoil in horror at jessicabrody.com's Save the Cat Novel Calculator. For example, if your novel is 85,000 words, then the theme should be stated 4,250 words in. Yes, it's that precise. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I just thought this is ludicrous. It's like, did Shakespeare or I don't know Charles Dickens or anyone, do they ever follow this sort of prescriptive nonsense? They understood human nature. They understood character. And they wrote the stories they wanted to write. And somehow the structure is there because human beings have got these characteristics in common. They behave in certain ways and structure becomes innate. It, it is there, but it's not like you're, you're, putting, you're putting the cart before the horse if you try to follow the structure and think because you've done that, you've got a great story. You might still have boring characters, a plot that doesn't make any sense, and just have something that's just too predictable in the end because it's followed this formula and everyone can see straight through it so you end up with a book that yeah it follows every part of save the cat and it's still just a terrible book or a terrible movie so that was my half of the article in a nutshell yes it's funny that uh you said like like we we were both we're all agreeing oh yeah writers like to be told what to do because you'd think that the the thing the reason that you become a writer is because you don't want to be told what to do. You want to tell other people how to think and how to yeah. feel. That's the whole point. The fact that it's not like a you're clocking in and you're following what the boss says. And so, but people hate freedom and they hate uh, they, they, they this is like the dilemma of the Grand Inquisitor or something. People just want to run back as soon as people are freed from rules. The first thing they want to do is run towards rules as quickly as they can. I like how you what describe it? it as the dilemma of the Grand Inquisitor. And I was thinking, oh, it's like Loki in the Avengers. So, you know. Oh, we, yeah, that's the difference between you and me, <laughs> That's Matt. the difference between you and me. <laughs> it's like a safety net thing. It's like, uh, it's an insecurity that if you're not sure, a writer's not sure what they're doing, not exactly sure what story they're telling or what their characters are, then they think, if I follow these rules, then I'll be okay. But okay, so Sophie, what was your response? My response would be, I don't see the problem with that. <laughs> I'm talking as somebody who isn't published, but is also, uh, also tries to write her own books. Before I had any sense of story structure, I really floundered. I don't really like conflict. Um, <laughs> and I didn't realise uh, my story needed it. So I was very, I created this beautiful world. And I think Gary's seen some of the chapters and the prose is is pretty pretty uh, beautiful if I say so myself but nothing very much happens and when it does happen it sort of finishes halfway how I'm talking about my first book when before I knew anything don't dismiss all of my all of my work but my main conflict is over by halfway and then it's sort of people twittering around so <laughs> so that they could the, the two kind of like the two main characters can get together so i would say as a writer i really appreciate being told what to do roughly i don't want to have to follow it but i like i like seeing it as advice i can go to when i'm in difficulty and i like the fact that particularly if you're not a screenwriter if you're an, if you're writing a novel you don't have to follow it meticulously nobody is actually asking you to put something at 4250 words you can do what you want in a novel it just might not work you know the story might just might not work so 
as I prefer doing everything except working out the conflict and the the, <laughs> the resolution, <laughs> as my dirty secret is that I don't really like conflict, I really appreciate not having to spend years thinking up a good story, but being able to put my characters into a structure and see where that leads me. So I can I can concentrate on the setting. I can concentrate on on all the bits I really love, like the characterization and not worry too much that I'm going to get stuck, basically, because you can have a beautiful world. If you pant, pants it, as I don't know whether you have this in screenwriting, but we have plotting and pantsing. You probably in screenwriting can't afford to um, <laughs> to pants. I don't know. Um, but if you if you just go by go by the seat of your pants and don't outline at all, you can get yourself into enormous trouble because I think well Gary is a, a particularly avid reader. I think he has a natural feel for story structure um, and he watches loads of films. I think he has a natural feel for story structure that I don't. And I think you can find all sorts of help for character development. I don't use them, but people can give you character, uh, you know, a hundred sets, set, you know, a hundred character questions. Why can't you borrow somebody else's structure? Um, well, I love how you you throw Zadie Smith in Gary's face, and you're like, "Oh, really? You don't like doing this? What about Zadie Smith?" <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I haven't got the article to hand, but basically Zadie Smith says that she spends ages creating scaffold, what she calls scaffolding um, for her novels. And, you know, she talks about she'll use the books of the, she'll model them on the books of the prophets or um, she'll go. I've got with... the exact quote here if you'd like me to read oh, have it. You? Oh, yes, please, Gary. Yeah. She says, for me, scaffolding comes in many forms. The only way to write this novel is to divide it into three sections of ten chapters each, or five sections of five of seven chapters, or the answer is to read the Old Testament and model each chapter on one of the books of the prophets, or the divisions of the Bhagavad Gita, or the Psalms, or Ulysses, or the songs of public enemy. And then you say if even a great like Sadie Smith has the same problem. But and then another thing I wanted to bring out from your article is uh, you talk about how you were working with uh, very respectable literary author and you're like oh i yes. kind of want to mention save the cat tour but i would never do that and then you're like why yeah. did you include this little thing here and she's like oh because save the cat told me i should have a whiff of death there and that's why i included that <laughs> <laughs> you were like oh okay you are following save the cat yes and I, would, and I would use that as an argument now either i'm very thick or i think that is an anecdotal rebuttal to the whole People will be able to tell, you know, people will get fed up of the of the structure underneath because there was no way I knew that she was using Save the Cat. I didn't. I don't but, know. And I'm quite sensitive so, to structure. But it sort of backs up Gary's point where you were like, why did she include this thing that doesn't fit in her novel? And then you were like, you were saying to the author, like, why would you do that? And she's like, oh, because Blake Snyder told me I had to. So this is sort of backing up Gary's point. I suppose so, actually. I've, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I sorry, you want conflict, to... don't you? You want to conflict. I want conflict. <laughs> yeah, okay, can I no, go back I to... completely disagree. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I go back to Zadie Smith. I wondered, though, that she wasn't being somewhat tongue-in-cheek when she said that, that she was actually being satirical about authors who base their books on all sorts of when they're being interviewed by the guardian or whatever and they say where they got their structure from and they come up they have these strange ideas or they've based it on some esoteric thing 
And just wonder, was she actually being completely serious and saying this is a good idea, or was she actually being sarcastic? Well, Gary, uh, this is a famous British irony I hear so much about. <laughs> it occurred to me, Sophie, when you were, you were talking earlier and you said, you know, I was writing my story and then the main conflict kind of finished halfway. And then you were saying that almost as though that was a problem. But in fact, that is what should happen. Like the the first problem that is kind of the, the main motivating problem, like Luke Skywalker saying, I got to go save Princess Leia. That does get wrapped up midway through Star Wars. Like Indiana Jones gets the arc midway through Raiders of the Lost Ark. And oh, then that true. sets off all these other problems that yeah. that make it much more interesting. And yeah, your your main conflict should wrap up by actually, the middle. You yes. are doing the right thing. Yes, actually, that's a good point. What happened um, before I read Matt's book and decided to completely restructure it, um, <laughs> but what was happening was around about the 50, up until the 50% mark, um, these two people were in trouble at work. And then they got vindicated and it looked like everything was sorted. And then over the years, I then developed it where they thought everything was sorted, but actually it was much, much worse. They couldn't get rid of the rumours that had gone around the country about the fraud that they were supposed to have been involved in. You intuitively did the right thing, even without Blake Snyder to help you. Yes, because what you're saying is like Luke Skywalker thinks he just has to rescue a princess, but really what he has to do is destroy the Death Star. Exactly. And yeah. Sophie's actually got exactly the same situation here, except that uh, it's to do with the rumours that are going around. You've got a much bigger problem that comes out of what you think is the original problem. And that's a good story. Um, if it had ended with him saving the princess, it wouldn't be as good a movie. Um, and it would it's... only been an hour long and everyone wanted their money back. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say something that will back both of you up. So, Gary, you were saying, or or maybe impeach both of you more importantly, Gary, you were saying that, like, Oh, well, Shakespeare would never do this. And, you know, you were saying that. And I'm like, Shakespeare totally did this. Shakespeare, every single play he wrote was five X. And he may have occasionally said, damn it, I want to do something that's two X. But no, I can't because I am I have this structure and I can't break it. I have to go ahead and do the structure. And generally, they have the same number of scenes in every act. Like the first act, it's like 10 scenes. And you sort of get down to like two scenes by the final act. And Generally, the it's all rising action, and there's big there's a big climax where it all climaxes. Occasionally, you would have him break his structure a little bit within the five act structure. So you have something like a Midsummer Night's Dream, where almost all the plot threads culminate and climax at the end of the fourth act, and then the fifth act is just an epilogue involving the players. Once all the couples are happily together. Oh yes! Oh yes! <laughs> and. I remember when I first read that, I'm like, he could have done it differently. This is my me in meddler mode. I'm like, he could have had... Editing Shakespeare. Editing Shakespeare. He could have had the players putting on their play for the king and queen. And as they put on the play, they come across um, the the couple, uh, come across the couples who have uh, paired up in the night. And I was coming up with my whole meddler version of it because I'm like, this is so strange that you have this one rare instance in Shakespeare of ending the conflict early and then having the fifth has to be an epilogue. But that's very much the exception that proves the rule. He was, he strikes me as a very, as someone who was very much cramming everything he did into the same structure. Yes, I think what I what I was saying about that though was that he wasn't following anyone's guide to do that. It was, I guess, it was the way plays were written at the time, and he was writing. We often forget he was writing popular plays to appeal to a popular audience, 
and he knew it worked, so he carried on doing it. But he still wrote these great stories, and he wasn't just looking at, I guess you could say that the formula existed at the time of this is how you set out a play was the equivalent, but it was sort of implicit rather than someone like Blake Snyder telling you how to do it. I, you don't think he had some, there's some urtext of some Blake Snyder <laughs> type uh, person who was laying out all of these five act. Uh... Well, oh my yeah, God. I'm if sure. we ever discovered that document, it would blow up Shakespeare studies. <laughs> we should write it. We, we need to just write it, get a time machine and just send it back. And uh... Oh, you, you, are, you are speaking to Matt's uh, great interest because Matt wrote a whole play about a Shakespeare forger that uh, is very good. Um, and I think, yeah, Matt, with your, uh, with your interests in my time machine, we can make this happen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I feel like this brings us to a bigger issue. And I think maybe the big issue for this podcast is descriptive versus prescriptive versus proscriptive. And what happens when you list out a structure? This goes back to Aristotle. So Aristotle sort of was the original Blake Snyder of his day. And Aristotle, when he wrote the Poetics, claimed I'm just being descriptive at the beginning of the book. I've seen a lot of plays. This tends to be the structure of plays. And then he laid out the first story structure. And But then by the end of the book, he is, goes from descriptive to prescriptive to proscriptive. He goes from, this is what tends to happen. And everybody does this. I do this. Blake Snyder does this. You start off by going like, well, I've just watched much stuff and this is what tends to happen. This tends to be the most common structure. And then you're like, so therefore, then you switch to prescriptive and saying, therefore, you should write this way. This is the right way to write. And then you switch to being proscriptive where you're like, and you're not allowed to write it differently. And this is, I think, especially a problem with Snyder. I think when people recommend Snyder, they're recommending him because he is descriptive. They're recommending him because like, oh, this was guy. And certainly this is true of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, I think, did a better job sticking to the descriptive side of it. I think Joseph Campbell yeah. was very much just going like, this is what tends to happen. And it was like George Lucas came along later and was like, okay, therefore let's try to recreate that. Let's try to go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I guess because Joseph Campbell wasn't a screenwriting guru who was an anthropologist. Yeah. Yes. But then George Lucas read his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and was like, we could use this hero's journey to write, To we could use this hero's journey to write screenplays. And used it a lot in Star Wars. And then after the success of Star Wars, they went ahead and did a PBS show together where George Lucas interviewed Joseph Campbell and illustrated everything Joseph Campbell was saying with clips from Star Wars as he interviewed him. And that became, I think that predated, that certainly predated Blake Snyder. I think it predated Sid Field. And as these floodgates sort of burst in the 80s and 90s, this idea of, oh, okay, what story structure should we be using to so it, I feel that's like an ex post facto kind of thing that he like, like there are many different drafts of Star Wars. He was working on it for a long time. And then like it finally became popular. It, it might not have become popular. And then like he used like Joseph Campbell to kind of give a gloss of respectability on it or to make it seem, you know, more highfalutin than it was. I think like he was, you know, I proceeding probably a lot more intuitively. Obviously, he got some inspiration from Joseph Campbell, but I don't think he saw Campbell's method and the mechanically produced Star Wars. No. Well, I've got a, I've got a sort of a magazine that came out at the time when Star Wars was just in the cinemas here. And being the sort of geek I am, it's still perfectly preserved in a, a sort of a vinyl LP cover. <laughs> uh, so, and even that, Lucas is talking about this stuff about 
I think he does mention Campbell, but he's also quite openly talking about, I just wanted to make a movie that had all the cool, fun stuff I grew up with in. <laughs> and he talks about swashbuckling movies, that mm. Adventures of Robin Hood, The Seahawk. And he's talking about old British war movies like The Dam Busters, which is where he gets the trench run in Star Wars from. Yep. And right. 633 Squadron, which is also a similar sort of thing where they're trying to hit this cliff and bring this rock down on top of this factory at the base of a cliff. And he actually quite openly, when this magazine points out where a lot of this stuff came from, and also the the whole famous samurai stuff as well. And so, yeah, he was just trying to put a lot of cool stuff that he loved as a kid in there. Yeah, I, I think there's like, it's, it's also the difference between inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Like everybody's saying, oh, we can deduce a script from Joseph Campbell's first principles. But there's also the inductive, like, no, I'm going to collect a bunch of stuff and then put it in somewhere. And I suppose the creative process involves both of those. Um, but like, I, I think if you go to, way too far towards the deductive method of saying, I'm going to produce something mechanically from some rules, I think you're in bigger trouble that way than if you're like, I want to put a bunch of cool stuff on screen. Because if you put a bunch of cool stuff on screen, at least you have cool stuff at the end of that. Yes. But so what do you, do you guys see Snyder as, as more prescriptive or descriptive? Do you think that it is Snyder's fault that, that eventually the book is used in a proscriptive way? Like, don't do this. Personally, I don't think it's his fault. I mean, I think in the beginning he was, simply trying to write a book that would tell people how to write something that was commercial. And as people tend to be, it's a bit like if you look at Monty Python's Life of Brian, where suddenly everyone's, but how do we follow? How do we do it? And it's like suddenly everyone becomes what was, yeah, what was originally, this is how you can do it, suddenly becomes this is how you have to do it because people have that failure of imagination or failure of confidence yeah. so they prefer to turn it into something hard and fast it's like america, i think it was george washington might not have been but it was one of the founding fathers of america said what we need a new revolution every 30 years because everything gets set in stone and people stop thinking for themselves yeah i think that was jefferson yeah it's just you've got to have a new revolution to make people think again about what they're actually doing otherwise they just start doing things by following a formula. Well, that was my book. My book came along 10 years after Blake Snyder's book, and I was the next revolution. And I revolutionized America to a certain extent. And I think that people were, were never the same again after my book came out. So does that mean that someone needs to start a revolution against your book? Yes, I think it's yeah, about time. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. This podcast is the revolution against my book. It's, it's Matt co-opting my resistance against the book, uh, wow. just in the same way that like neoliberalism always co-ops all of its critics and makes it part of its own scheme. I've been co-opted by Matt and part of his machine. Sophie, so you were saying like you wanted to mention Save the Cat to an author. Like when you had considered mentioning Save the Cat and then decided not to, why did you decide not to? Um, I think it was the, I, I, I want to be taken seriously as a publisher. Um, we're a, you know, we're a new startup and I didn't want to worry her by bringing something so populist <laughs> into into my into my um editorial notes um i wanted i you know the editor author relationship is based on trust you have to build that trust that you know what you're talking about and i didn't want to worry her and she's she's a graduate of a prestigious mentoring program and i would have thought it would have been beaten out of her um, i'm thinking of um one of gary and my friends in particular who's Got, got um 
got a PhD and <laughs> he refuses to have rules. <laughs> he refuses to use rules at all and won't even criticise you. He'll ask questions that will start. It's all very freestyle. And so because I knew him, I assumed that, you know, I, I, I think I assumed things of the, um, of the, of, of my author's cu culture. Um, yes. So I think it was a, I, yeah, I think it was an awareness of the snobbery. It might be right, right or wrong. There is what I would call snobbery around Save the Cat. And I was aware of it and I didn't want her to think worse of me for it. <laughs> and you were falsely <laughs> assuming that she would have a snobbish view of Save the Cat and it turned out she didn't. She didn't. And she's, a, she, you know, she's, as I say, she's, um, she's been um, edited by the best. I mean, we're not, we're, we're not just editing her. She's also been edited by somebody who's edited, you know, award winners. Well, um, that's the thing about snobbery, isn't it? it? Snobbery is all about anxiety of being in the middle. People who are like truly proletarian aren't snobs and people who are truly like on top aren't snobs. Like the most vulgar and kind of unrestrained people that you'll meet will be on the top and in the bottom. But mm -hmm. it's all of us anxious people in the middle who are concerned about snobbery and are anxious about whether or not we're being taken seriously. Snobbery always comes out of anxiety. So what um, you're telling and... me is that it's not anybody. You're telling me I'm the snob, James. Basically. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm trying to free you from oh, the anxiety of snobbery <laughs> because, because somebody who is truly in control artistically doesn't have that anxiety you know what i mean like they in the same way that you'll meet somebody who is top out of sight and they will have a totally kind of proletarian taste you're like oh i can't believe this super rich person who was born into so much privilege you know yes. actually goes to monster truck rallies and sees nothing yeah. like odd about it because like they have no anxiety um, yes. And in the same way, a true artist will pick things up from anywhere and not yes. care where they come from because they don't have that anxiety. Yes. Yeah, like Kate Winslet, who um, didn't she have bangers and sorry, sausages and mash potatoes at her wedding? <laughs> See, there, there, there you go. Somebody who is truly on top does not suffer uh, anxiety of snobbery either in one no. direction or the other. If, if we, I mean, I think we can bring some kind of clarity to this is like, there's this phrase that they use at Pixar called, and we've mentioned it on the podcast before, tools, not rules. So like, you, you can have all of these things that are, you know, pr pr like give you advice, and you can kind of Take them or leave them. Yes. You know, it's healthy to read Save yes. the Cat. And if it sparks you in some certain direction, great. You don't have to take it that seriously, but you don't have to not read it either. Um, yes. If it turns out that like your friend saw, it's like, oh, whiff of death. Oh, I could use that. Like like a magpie. Actually, magpies don't do this. They don't really collect uh, shiny things. But let's say like the mythical magpie, authors are always on the lookout for, you know, different uh, weird ways of looking at the world, odd scenes they can put in, cool phrases that they've picked up, or even odd structural things. And if you happen to read one and you say, oh, that would work for me, then yeah. great. And I think if you just hold it lightly, uh, then it's harmless to read these things. Um, and as long as you just don't take them too seriously and you are confident in your own creativity and, yeah. and confident that you can yeah. follow your own little weird star. Yes, I think that's a good point. Is that, a, is that a way to kind of resolve this? Yes, basically, we can stop the we can stop the uh, podcast now. Um, yes, oh, Gary. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's because I think I said earlier it's like a safety net. It's a confidence thing. If you're confident to go and do your own thing, then fine, take ideas from wherever you find them. 
After all, writers are supposed to have a notebook and jot everything down and, and steal like magpies don't. So yeah, go for it. Well, you say in the article, Sophie, that like once you've written it and you realize like something is missing here, a beat is yeah. missing, and you can then consult Blake Snyder to say like, okay, what, what do I, you know, when I myself am disappointed in my own story, not when, you know, a producer or an editor is saying like, you're missing a Blake Snyder beat here. But when I myself feel like something yes. is missing, I yes. can consult something like this to see it. Now, what I talk about in my book, in my first book, Secrets of Story, is I talk about the way I think story structure works is not that great men told you that this is how stories should be written or that, you know, your boss or the person buying your work has told you this is how stories should be written. That, that to me, you know, I end up with a structure that is somewhat similar to Blake Snyder's, you know, sort of, you know, I have a 14 point structure. He's got like a 15 point structure or something like that. And I end up with something similar, but I talk about how I'm just trying to describe human nature. I'm just trying to go like, People tend to go through certain steps and missteps when they yeah. solve a large problem. And a lot of the stories where you're like, well, you know, Pulp Fiction doesn't do this. It's like, because that's not a story about the solving of one large problem, but most stories about the solving of one large problem. And for the most part, in human nature, people tend to go through a familiar set of steps and missteps when confronted with one large problem. Now, yeah. and I think that that is true to a certain extent of Blake Snyder. I think that Blake Snyder, you know, when he talks about the opening image, and he talks about the promise of the premise. He talks about some things that are not, don't exactly fall into that. Yeah, I think the thing that's uh, good about your method, Matt, is that it's not just uh, empty formalism, but it's rooted in something in human nature. Like it's like, and it's also uh, restricts its scope. It says, okay, I'm not talking about every story. I'm talking about stories that are about the solving of a large problem, which incidentally are most of the stories, but. Setting the the edge cases aside, like Pulp Fiction or whatever, setting those aside, so you've restricted your scope and, and said, okay, but the four stories are about the solving of a large problem. They tend to go like this. So it's yeah. rooted, it, it restricts the scope. It's rooted in human nature. And therefore, I think that's why it's stronger than somebody that just says, oh, I tend to see these kind of things all the time. You should repeat them. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I like the scientific... I like the scientific basis behind it. The I yes. And I don't but to be honest, I don't really mind why it works. I just am so desperate as a writer for something that you know, the number of I mean, writer's block is a real I mean, the kind of writer's block I'm talking about where you don't know what to do next for a few days rather than you know, but it's a real it's um rather than um, deep depression but it is it's 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 a real thing and it is so much easier to be professional and turn up uh, you know um, turn up every day to write if you have something to rebel against if you have a structure to rebel against or to conform to it's it's not easy turning up look at a blank page and wait for ins wait for inspiration Does anybody I think you're right Sophia I also think this has to do with just basically, what kind of personality do you have? Because yeah. I think that's probably true for you. I don't think that's true for me. And then when you like hear like David Lynch talk about how he makes his movies, he's like, well, you get about you know 25 scenes 
you put them in a certain order and that's a movie. <laughs> and you're like, what? Uh, and, and like, so I, I think like it has to do with one's confidence. It has to do with one's anxiety. It has to do with like how one approaches the task of writing. And I think with, if people have a lot of anxiety uh, about it, which like great writers can have anxiety about it, then this is a great thing for them. But for people who don't have that kind of anxiety, yeah. then it, it, it's, you know, it, it doesn't work so well. What do you think, Gary? Well, I was also thinking, does this go back to what Sophie was saying earlier about uh, people who are pantsers or plotters? And if you plot in the beginning, if you've got your story more or less worked out in the beginning, then when you sit down each day to write, you should already know, if you're that sort of writer, roughly where you're going with it, what sort of scenes you're going to be writing that day, which, again, does depend on the sort of things you're writing. If you're, yes. I mean, you also go back to one of the examples Stephen King gives of where he was writing Misery and he just had the idea for the two characters and the basic situation, had no idea how it was going to turn out, but he had these two great characters, put them together in a room and let them get on with it. And then you'll talk about, and it takes one of his bigger books where you've got a multi-character thing and he does have to plot that out in advance. Otherwise he could write himself into all sorts of corners. So he's got that situation then when he sits down and he knows more or less what he's going to be writing that day, presumably. He's got certain scenes all planned out because he knows that he's got to get the story from A to B to C because he's already worked that out in advance. So I'm wondering, is it about, in that situation, really having worked it out in more detail in advance? Yeah. And I think I, that what tends to happen with pantsers and potters is that if you pants your way through your first draft, five by the seat of your pants then you have to then plot your way through your second draft. You have to go like, all right, yes. now let me retroactively rewrite this book as if I had known the plot in advance. And to a certain extent, if you're a potter and you're like, you know, writing your book strictly according to the 14 steps you know you have to hit, then you spend your second draft trying to retroactively pants the book and yes. going like, oh, now let me bring some of the spontaneity to it that I didn't yeah. have the first draft. I completely, I completely agree. I think... It is just a matter of the order in which you you combine your pantsing and your plotting. I think. Yeah, I think we're we like because of the very nature of how people argue, we all ca caught up in these false binaries. You know, yes. are you a pantser or are you a plotter? Is this prescriptive or you know descriptive or whatever? And in fact, when you're actually putting pen to paper hands to the keyboard you're doing all these things at once and all these kind of binaries kind of evaporate um, because you're not talking about writing you're writing yes absolutely yes. yes but having said that it is nice to have your own process it's nice to to know what usually works for you and you might have to learn that with each novel uh, you might have to it might be slightly different or very different with each novel but it's always good to have something that you know worked well for you last time for instance I know I'm a I I tend to discovery write my first draft with a you know very basically I've got a sort of a fear a de desire and a misbelief kind of thing and a vague midpoint and a you know and I know where I want it to end and then I'm like I, I, I do what Matt said and I go back and then I I spend quite a a sizable portion of my editing time working out where my because my structure is my weakest my weakest point work you know working on my structure trying to see why it isn't you know um tweaking it and i often find that when i've got my structure right and i don't mean when my structure is when um 
when the save the cat moment, you know, fits into that sort of 4,250 words. But when I've, <laughs> but, but when I've got my structure right for me, then my prose and my, um, my prose falls into place much more easily. So I know that this, the, it's a bit like having a skeleton. There's no point having a great liver or a, you know, and a set of, you know, and a great guts if you haven't got if you haven't got any bones to hold hold them up. I think structure is very important. And if I didn't have um Save the Cat or and I, I don't to be honest, I don't just go according to Save the Cat. I use other you know, I, I look at other structures as well. But if I didn't have these ideas about what to do next, I would be um trying I would have found a mentor and I would have they would be trying to ghost me because I would be always nagging them for help. <laughs> <laughs> and basically the great thing about, I, I understand Bake Snyder's dead. Um, so he can't be plagued by my, my questions. Um, I think that was his, uh, I think he faked his own death. So he wouldn't have to do. So he wouldn't be plagued by questions. Yes. Yeah. So oh no, I'm, Sophie's coming after me again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if only there was some helpline for structure, a structural well, helpline. I would pay for that, Matt and James. I would, if you wanted to make some extra money. Well, this is how I'm currently making my money, is they were developing an app at Facebook that involved story and involved AI. And they were trying to teach this AI to understand story. And then they were like, well, we need to understand story. And they said, well, there's this book. There's this book called The Secrets of Story, and it does a good job laying out the fundamentals of story. So let's go ahead and all study this book as a team and use it to teach our AI how to write stories. And they'd been doing this for a while. And they're like, you know what we could do? We could just call Matt Bird himself, the <laughs> actual guy. Yes. And we could- 24 hours, 24 seven. We could try to hire him to join this team. And so I- haven't really earned a living in the last 20 years since I was a union organizer writing books. I think everybody on this phone knows, everybody on this call knows that writing books is sometimes not the most lucrative career in the world. No. Generally speaking, you know, I was a copywriter for Scholastic. That was only two days a week. It wasn't especially lucrative. I've, you know, I, well, I was a screenwriter and I sold screenplays and that wasn't especially lucrative because it's the only big money jobs I ever got. They never paid me. And so I, and so now I'm actually making a living for the first time uh, in my writing career because <laughs> Facebook called me up and they were like, why don't we just hire Matt Bird himself? Let's get the, let's have our own personal story guru here in the room with us. And it has been wonderful. <laughs> but let's go ahead and bring it back to Blake Snyder. There's a lot we didn't end up discussing about Blake Snyder here, including his titular advice, Save the Cat, which I was hoping we'd discuss because then I could promo my new upcoming book, which is going to be coming yes. out shortly after this episode posts, uh, The Secrets of Character, Running Hero Anyone Will Love, which is sort of a book-length response to the titular advice in Save the Cat. Yeah. And I begin with saying, like, let's look at... The Hunger Games, in which the heroine first begins wanting to kill her house cat and then goes out and does kill a cat, kills a lynx that has sort of fallen in love with her and is following her around all the time. And she's like, well, you know, you're scaring off on the game. I'll kill you and sell your pelt. And it's like, I felt a little bit about killing him, but I did get good money for his pelt. 
And like I talk about, and then ironically, after I wrote my book, I did read Jessica Prodi's Save the Cat for Novel Writing book. And she totally cites Save Hunger Games as a Save the Cat moment. And I'm like, but she actually kills a cat. (laughs) But describe what the advice Save the Cat is. The advice is just, you should have a hero save a cat. That's what the advice is. She was complaining about movies like the two Renner movies in which the hero is just starting around like a badass and saying like, you know, the hero doesn't seem human to us because the hero doesn't do anything likable like saving a cat. And in my book, I talk about how like, no, you know, you can have a hero who kills cats and that can, and this hero can be even more likable. So, so, you know, so when we're talking about Blake Snyder and should, we've sort of ended up in discussion of like, should writers use any kind of structure. We didn't really get into what's particularly wrong about Blake Snyder's structure instead of other people's structures. But nice. we but we also haven't gotten into, like a lot of his advice is really wrong in his books. Even the idea that someone should state the theme correctly on page five, you know, much less having yeah. it, as you were pointing out, Gary, at a particular word count. But, you know, I just don't think that anyone should know the theme it's, of the story that nice. early in the story. Nice. Um, I I I don't know whether this is the time to bring in um, high fidelity, <laughs> um, but I was watching it this morning, um, which Gary thinks is very <laughs> self indulgent. But I was watching it this morning. Hey, I, I was just having to work. That's all. Yes, you I'm just jealous. Work, so <laughs> Um, I'd already done my work, you see, because I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> I was looking at it, having read your book, Matt, and I was, I mean, I, oh dear. I haven't, to, to be honest, I haven't finished your book yet. But I have already recommended it to about four people. Um, and I've actually bought it for somebody um, <laughs> on Amazon and sent it over to them. Um, oh, my first I, book. I, I, I'm so sorry. Not, yes, your first book. Yeah. Um um, because the character, but the character chapter on which is so your 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 new book, isn't it? Is a is a development of most uh, of what you say in the character chapter in my first in, book. Yes, in your in your first book. Yes, um, and I found that so brilliant. Now I've never, I to be honest, I'd kind of forgotten that. Uh, you know, like you talk about butterflies, and you never think that a butterfly means butter and fly together do you right i when i talk about save the cat i kind of actually forget save the cat moment i don't worry about save the cat moments it never occurs when i'm using save the cat structure but it so helped me i realized that my i basically fallen with this this first novel that it was a disaster that basically my heroine had fallen in love was in love without realizing it with my hero um, and therefore, she was seeing every, everything I was seeing through her eyes was just about him. And he's he's a really cool guy, but she comes across as a bit of a um, I don't know if it's a, an American friendly word, but a bit of a drip. Um, she just <laughs> yes, we she, have it. Uh, she she eventually gets it together. But I've been thinking that she has to go from you use this expression that she doesn't. Uh, it's a misconception. You say it's a misconception to think that you have to go from zero to hero. Our characters have to have mixture of loser and hero in them from the very beginning. And I found that so helpful. Um, um, And I was thinking about, um, and therefore I've changed my character and she's, she's likable from the beginning. And and that's as from yesterday. I, 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 um, I, 
I've literally just tweaked the fact that she's she's hyper bright, which comes through in the rest of the book. And I've literally just had to tweak a scene or two for that to be obvious in the beginning. Um, so it didn't take much to uh, it didn't it didn't take much. And it changes the whole it changes the whole book. It changes her motivation and everything. It's, it's just so I'm very grateful to you. Um, that is wonderful to hear. That is so much of what I want to do is I don't want someone to completely rewrite everything they've done based on what I say. I want someone to find just one shim to to shim up something in their oh. book. That is what I want. I want someone to go like, oh, okay, here's this one thing I can take out of Matt's book and add this one thing to my story, and then suddenly it all works. And that is so much more what I want to do rather than, you know, I talk about in my new book how I get these letters from people going like, well, I did your checklist in your first book, and one, I couldn't do step 231 and could I get permission from you to not do step 231 (laughs) and I and I just got one of these letters last week and uh and I'm always like I'm like oh my god yes 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 you do not have to do step 231 oh my god you're rewriting your whole book according to my rules don't do that don't do that I've created a generation of writing monsters yes (laughs) I like like that the psycho is writing you a literal letter (laughs) in blood yeah the (laughs) But I was thinking about it because I was so inspired. I was thinking about it looking at high fidelity this morning. High fidelity, it's not clear. The structure isn't particularly obvious. But when you read the book, um, I read the book and I I enjoyed it by the end because I I eventually understood it was um, a sweet sweet romance. But it took me ages to get past the fact that um, Rob, the hero, was a loser, or because because you see it entirely in his point of view. That's how he feels, and that's how he comes across. And but looking on screen and seeing, because you could see everybody else's reactions to him, you could see Laura, his his ex girlfriend, actually reacting to him. Um, and I was looking for your. But I was looking for objects and I was thinking the book is quite devoid of it's quite sparse prose. It's it you don't I never think, oh, I want to be in the world of Rob. I think, oh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit bleak and suburban and a bit boring. I was looking at the film and seeing and, and looking for the objects because the idea of in Secrets of Story. I mean, you talk about objects, you know, there are various objects in the book and in the movie, but I feel like the number one object is not necessarily a physical object. It's the lists. And I, I talk about this in my new book. I talk about high fidelity. And whenever characters try to quantify the unquantifiable, it's always likable. And whenever anybody turns something into a list or whenever they have, you know, uh, especially something with doodles on it or anything. Uh, and I just recommended the movie The Michels versus the Machines on my uh, uh, on my blog, um, which has been revived. But, um, you know, I just love the doodles in that movie and I just love his lists and you know, to, it's it's really touching to me. His like he'll list like the top five breakup songs, which is the sort of list you expect someone to make, and then it lists like the top five breakups. And then the structure of that book comes from him trying to track down 
the yeah. five women who have dumped him and trying to ask them why they dumped him so he can understand why his current relationship ended. But then he'll list like, you know, top five jobs I would like to get if I stop working in this record store. And one of the jobs is journalist at Rolling Stone magazine from 1962 to And that's just so touching. And I think that's the ultimate yeah. way. One of the reasons I talk about objects is replacing quality with quantity, replacing a concept with, and with something concrete. And I'm there's not- no better example of turning quality into quantity than making the lists. Uh, and you love him uh, because you're a kindred soul. You are an analyzer and a systematizer. And so, of course, it's going to kind of like his personality trait is going to chime with yours. Yes. And that's probably why I like, I particularly like John Cusack. I think I, I think I'm, yeah. But um, I, I, I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because I was thinking that the, objects were the records now when you're reading the book if you're not massively into music you have to wade through all these references that you don't really understand on the film I didn't have to do that I it was much because because it's a much more visual medium you see him you see him alphabetizing and it's an it's an oral medium so you can hear the great music in the movie which you can't hear in the book but it's funny of all the books i've read i can only think of two books in which the hero goes on and on about how he doesn't like the beatles and um (laughs) i i think that you know the that that one of those books really works well and um no i'm i'm Kidding! I'm, uh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm. Keep going. Keep going. Teasing James because I can really think of two books in which the character goes on not about Alan the Beatles, and one is High Fidelity, and the other is James's latest novel, Dare to Know. Ah, but, um, all right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, problematic he in both books that. because he that. he's mean about your book. <laughs> in both books, I was like, Jesus Christ, this guy doesn't even like the Beatles. He's so crazy, <laughs> so negative. <laughs> and it turned me off of both characters to a certain extent, although both characters won me over in the end. Um, I, I think to have an idiosyncratic take on something is interesting. The, the most boring thing in the world to say is, I like the Beatles, because everybody likes the Beatles. But it's also, if you have or is it universal? No, no, but here's the thing. if it, it's It's not... But it's not interesting to say I hate the Beatles. What's interesting is have a is to have a peculiar reason that you feel creeped out by the Beatles that is rooted in that person's particular personality yes. and, like and 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 place and time. Uh, yeah. I think you're kind of smoothing yeah, over a lot of things true. if you want to make a point. Yeah, the other side of that is it would be boring to say I like the Beatles because, as you say, ninety nine percent of people do like the Beatles. Yeah. But but I think you can say interesting things about why you like the Beatles, or you could say interesting things about why you don't like the Beatles, and you know either way you can make a character come come to life to a certain extent. All right, everybody, this has been a wonderful discussion. We've had so much good discussion about so many things and things we discussed a little bit about Star Wars, but we've discussed a lot about things we haven't discussed elsewhere. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much oh, for having you. us. She she says thank a you. Bit, it's been great. No, thank you. Does anybody have any closing thoughts? I, I just love your book. She says drooling. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants a signed copy. Yes, I, do, I would really. love to. I would love to get you one. But well, thank you so much for buying the book and reading it and appreciating it and uh, and helping spread the word to others. And my new book is called The Secrets of Character. 
writing heroes that anyone will love. And it is, I think, going to come out shortly after this podcast is released, or maybe shortly before. It is sort of a book on repost to save the cat. And um, it is how to actually get people to fall in love with your hero in 10 pages. And uh, I recommend that to everybody. And of course, pick up James's book as well. Uh, Dare to know. Dare to know. And um, so what about you guys? Should I recommend that people buy anything that you guys have published? Um, I have I've got a specific thing. Um, uh, We would really like the world the word out. Sorry, I would really like the word out on the first book that's coming out this year called Sold, which is about child, um, a 15 year old girl. Um, gets trafficked to the UK from Eastern Europe, and it's a unique. It's a unique, almost. I, well, we can't find any decent. We can't find any competitors. Um, it seems to be an almost unique subject. So we're very. I'm. That's that's Cadence's first book that should be coming out this year. So if we could get a pre-order sorted, um, <laughs> if I can work out how to do that, because that's that'll be a new bit of skill set. It would be. It would be amazing to have some sort of thing on that yes everybody should read that book that sounds like a very uh important and excellent book that is wonderful to hear okay gary was there anything in particular you wanted to uh push yeah, or talk about a couple of things you could suggest people could check out our article in writing in the june issue of writing yes, magazine point. absolutely yes and uh yeah they the find that at writersonline.co.uk and the other thing is they can if anyone needs their or wants their book their story their article if they need any editing advice they want to hire an editor they can find me at to the last word.com yes and i highly recommend gary because he edited one of my short stories and uh he's a great editor and i just say that james's story is absolutely fantastic can i just tell you a little bit something about that is i got asked to edit this anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories about plants end up being called improbable botany And I was given the freedom to hire, to choose all the writers myself. And I got a collection of really good writers from both sides of the Atlantic. And the publisher foisted this writer I'd never heard of on me, this guy called James Kennedy. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm told I've got to put this story by this guy in the book. Right? And you, get, and you don't like being told what to do, do you, Gary? Well, well, it wasn't a matter of that. It's like, who is this guy? I've got these <laughs> award-winning writers in there. I've got some really good writers. I've got people who've won Philip K. Dick Award in there, the Arthur C. Clarke Award. And I'm being told I've got to have this guy called James Kennedy in there. Who is he? It's like, is he going to be terrible? He's just a friend of the publisher. <laughs> and anyway, I get to see a story, and it's fantastic. It's a great story. And I'm a big fan of that story. I'm trying to remember the name of the story, James. What's it's the name? called Advent. 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 Advent is... is you know, James has had me read and give notes on everything he's written. Uh, and this this was one of the ones where I was like, you know, like, oh, this is wonderful, James. And I was so happy to hear that it had gotten published. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the anthology is named after something in the order of Oddfish, uh, my first novel. There's a character in it who is a specialist in improbable botany. Little known fact about the book. Oh, yeah, so the book was published as a just a limited book. But you can still get the ebook. So go and buy the ebook and read Improbable Botany. And it has an advantage over the physical book is that I interviewed all of the writers. So there's also quite a long interview with me interviewing James in the book as well in the ebook. All right. Well, that is fantastic. It has has the most beautiful cover as well. Absolutely beautiful cover. Oh, it's illustrated throughout uh, very beautifully as well. Yes. And I I have the illustration of my story like uh, hanging on my wall in my house because it's so good. 
Well, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank both of you for coming on. I'm, I'm so glad we've we finally had a new episode of this podcast that is going to be coming out. And we will see you. Hopefully, we've got a good idea for an upcoming episode. So hopefully, it won't be so long before we see you again. That would be lovely. Thanks so much, Matt and James. Really nice to meet you. Thank you bye. for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Thank okay, you. everybody. Okay, bye, everybody. Bye. Okay, goodbye. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.